As we continue through the book of Genesis, we now launch into a man named Abram. Abram who will become Abraham. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, you'll recognize that there are moments in life where God's call on your life may be to do something, to enact in a certain way, and you'll follow it. There are times and moments where God may say to you, I want you to do this, and you'll be strong in that. Maybe it's a witness at work. Maybe it's to a neighbor or a friend where God's asking you to take what he has shared with you and allow others to see what he's done through you. Maybe it's an act more extreme than that. Maybe it's like Dee, Deirdre, how we heard today, her move to Asia to work among uh, the Tibetan and Buddhist monks that are there and God's call on her life to do that and what that looks like. And so as you hear some of those callings, at times, there's those of us that just say, yeah, God, what you're asking me to do, I will just do. I think of Marcio and Eleni, who was playing the drums this morning. Marcio uh, called from Brazil to Canada to work among people here and to call them to faith in Christ as an evangelist. And so there are times in our lives when God specifically asks us to do something. He may ask us to purchase a certain house, to be a witness in a specific neighborhood. He may ask us to, in terms of a certain job, take a certain position within that job for the witness that he would ask us to have or to be. He may ask us to give certain amounts of money, even though those amounts may seem ludicrous to us or to our accountant, because God wants to show how faithful he is. He wants to show that he is the great provider. And then there are moments in that call where our faith wanes, where we doubt, where we struggle, where at times we think, man, I got to take matters into my own hands. Things here are not going according to plan. Where is God? Can I trust his character? Is his faithfulness going to show through? Will he do what he's promised? And so there are times and moments where God's put a call on our life. We're living our lives, and the Sioux seem to have this crossroad moment where we have to make a decision. Do I trust God in this moment, or do I take things into my own hand? Do I rely on my own wisdom, my own insight, my own understanding? Do I, when my kid's faith is collapsing, rely on my own wisdom or God's? Do I, when my neighbor tells me not to witness to them anymore, rely on my own wisdom or God's? Do I, when I've decided to make this financial commitment to whatever it would be for God's kingdom, continue in that when the bills pile up or don't I? And so often we end up relying on our own strength. And you'll find that that is the story of Abram and Sarai, who become, of course, Abraham and Sarah. That is their story, and right from the get-go, right from chapter 12, as we're introduced to Abram, it happens right here, and it introduces interplay into the, in, 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 into the story, the journey of Abram, that will last for his entire life, some of the decisions he will make, and into the lives of his children, into the lives of his children, both Isaac and Ishmael, and then, of course, you know, after Sarah passes on, Abraham has several more children. So God's call on Abram's life. Listen to this, verse 1 of chapter 12. So the Lord had said to Abram, go from your own country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now it's interesting here that God is fairly comprehensive in what he wants Abram to do. Go. And as you go, I want you to leave your country, the place that you've grown up, the, the things that you're familiar with, and you may not have grown up there, but the things you're familiar with, your people those around you that you are comfortable with, the people that you know, the custom and culture that you're aware of, and your father's household, the security of your dad's wealth and his economic prosperity. And all he knows is, and go to the land I'll show you. 
doesn't know anything about the land. God gives him no indication of what this land is like. God doesn't tell him what the land will be like. God doesn't tell him if it's flourishing or desolate. God doesn't tell him if it's occupied or unoccupied. Abram knows nothing. Except he's to leave everything he knows to go to a place he knows not. Now there's controversy here about who Terah was. That's Abram's dad. Did he have faith or didn't he have faith? It's complicated because in Joshua 24, it talks about how he had worshipped foreign gods. Abram's dad worshipped foreign gods. But in Genesis 31, it talks about the faith of Abram's dad. And so which is true? And why do you have both accounts later on in Scripture itself? I'm going to suggest that what happens is likely uh, Terah, Abram's dad, had no faith. And when they were in the land of Ur, they had no faith. And then Terah, it says, at the end of Genesis 11, was moving from Ur to Canaan, which is the promised land. He's moving from the land where he's in to, to Ur. But he stops in, in Haran, and that's where he dies. And it would seem that somewhere along that journey from Ur and the Chaldeans to Canaan, that God had granted him faith, which is why I think in, in uh, the book of Joshua, we have him being described as one who worships foreign idols, meaning that Abram was raised in an unbelieving home that worshiped foreign gods. But along the way, God, I believe, spoke to him, which is why Genesis 31 talks about the faith of Abram's father. And that faith was probably on that journey from Ur on the way to Canaan and on the way to that land when he stops in Haram, which is where he dies. God granted him faith. That's simply my speculation in that in terms of the controversy that's there. And God here begins to set Abram apart, and in doing so, he begins to establish his nation, Israel. God now begins to establish his work predominantly through one people group on the, on the face of the planet, the Israelites. And God's going to call Abram out to do it. Verse 2, and I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you. And I will make your name great, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you, I will curse and all of the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Several times, God here talks about blessing and also briefly cursing. God says to him, one, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. That's hard for Abram to fathom because he's fatherless. He has no children. Abram and Sarah are barren. They have no child. And yet God here says to Abram, you're going to be a great nation. You are about to be the beginning of something that will be extraordinary, well beyond you. Second thing he says is, I will make your name great. I will make your name great. Now this is interesting, and when you think of chapter 12, and you juxtapose it to chapter 11, and you're thinking about chapter 11, where the peoples gathered together to make their name great, and God scattered them and confused their language because they were concerned about their name, their legacy, who they were, and they have done now. God says to Abram, I'm going to actually make your name great. Because you can't make your name great, but God can. And when you set out to make your name great, God will thwart that because God opposes the proud. But God gives grace to the humble, and so for Abram, he says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then he explains what that blessing is. I will bless those who bless you. God says to Abram, when people are actually a blessing to you because of who you are in the economy of my kingdom, I am going to bless them. But if they curse you, I will curse them. 
and all peoples on the earth will be blessed because of you. Is that not a fascinating statement? All peoples on the earth will be blessed because of you. Of course, we know now that the line of the Messiah comes through Abram, Jesus. And all peoples on the earth have been blessed because of him. It's only a number of weeks ago when I was taking a look at the, the world statistics around Christians that you see how many believers are in Asia and how many believers are in Africa and how many believers are in Oceania and how many believers are in Europe and how many believers are in South America and how many believers are in North America. And there are believers scattered around the entire world, all over, whose promise begins with Abram. It's why we find in books like Peter, uh, 1 Peter, where God takes the promises that are true of the Old Testament people. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. And God puts them onto us. You are now a chosen people. You are now a royal priesthood. You are now a holy nation. You were not a people belonging to God, but now you are a people belonging to God. And the very promises that God granted to Abram and then to Israel, God grants to his people the church. God says, this now belongs to you. And it started here with Abram. He is our ancestor. We're grafted into God's family this way. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. That's where his dad died. On the way from Ur to Canaan. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So you have Abram, and it simply says that he did what God said. He heard the voice of the Lord saying, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father, go, your father's household, go, and Abram just does it. Go to the land, I'll show you. Abram doesn't know what that is. God hasn't even told him where that land is yet. God hasn't said, here's where I'm taking you. Abram simply walks in obedience. And he brings his wife and his nephew Lot. Lot comes with them. And note, it says that he takes both the people, the possessions he had accumulated and the people that he had acquired in Hanan. The term acquired here does not necessarily mean the term for slavery. This term here can mean those that have determined to join your household. So this term here is a different term than the word used for slavery frequently, and it can mean just those who've decided to be part and partake in your household. And so there's a group of people who decided to join alongside of Abram and to walk alongside him and be part of his family, and they say, Abram, we're going with you. So Abram obeys, and they walk with him. So Abram travels through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Mori at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were living in the land. So he gets to the land where God is promising him, and Abram realizes, huh, there's a complication with the promise. There's people living here. There's people living in the promised land. So the first complication is, God's going to make me into a nation, and I am barren. I have no kids. The second complication, when God brings him to the land, is Abram sees the Canaanites already living there. So verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram's looking out at the land. He sees the Canaanites there, and he realizes, wow, there's people living here. So I'm barren. The land that God's promised is occupied. And what's Abram going to do? God says to him, this time, so first, 
the word of the Lord spoke to him. Now it says in verse 7, it's a change in words that the Lord appears to him. We're not sure exactly how that happened, but the Lord appears to him. Was this a theophany of some kind? Is this anthropomorphic language of some kind expressing what it means that God is showing up in Abraham's life? But I believe probably very visibly God appeared to him. And so Abram first believes what God has said in his word, and now Abram shows up visibly. I mean, God shows up visibly. The Lord appears to him. He says, to your offspring, remember, he's barren, I will give this land. And Abram offers a response. Verse 7. He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worships God. Abram knows he's barren. He realizes that the land is occupied. And in this moment, he simply worships God. He builds an altar and worships him. From there, he went on toward the hills of East Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Again, he built an altar to worship the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. So again, you have here in these first few verses of, of Genesis 12, God's call on Abram's life and Abram walking in obedience. God's going to establish covenant with Abram. Paul's going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But right now, God is just simply offering him promise and blessing. Abraham walks in obedience and worships God. He simply steps out and does that. He does what God has said. And that's what God asks of us. When God calls us to something, whether it's in the word, where God has established parameters for how we're to live because he knows best, he's designed us, he's crafted us, created us, and God knows best how we're to live, whether it's in the word or whether it's his still, small voice speaking to us by way of his spirit. And I know I said this a few weeks ago, but some of you emailed this saying how much it struck you. That the Spirit of God will never lead you where the Word of God cannot take you. You can reverse that if you want. The Spirit of God will never take you where the Word of God will never lead you. The whole idea is that whatever God's Spirit is ever asking you to do, it will always be aligned with the Word of God. It will never ask you to contravene the Word. It is the Spirit's Word. It is God's Word. He will never contradict His Word ever. So now there's a famine in the land. You have the tension in the story. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, listen, I know you are a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. It's interesting, Abram never thought the promise of God was in jeopardy when he was barren, and never thought the promise of God was in jeopardy when Canaanites were living in the land. But when he goes to Egypt because there's famine in the land, he now thinks God's promise is in jeopardy. And he's like, man, i got to take things into my own hand. God might look after my barrenness, and God might look after the Canaanites, but right now i got to take matters in my own hand, because Sarai, she's beautiful. And Pharaoh's going to take her into her harem. And I'm going to get killed because of that. I mean, those days, pharaohs or kings would have large harems of women at their disposal. And in those large harems, they would typically have a variety of women in those harems, young to old, um, variety of backgrounds, uh, depending on how they wanted to be pleased on certain evenings. 
And so Sarai is beautiful, and Abram knows. This is what's going to happen. Now, this is interesting that this account with uh, three different, on three different occasions happens in the book of Genesis. It happens now with Abram and Pharaoh. It happens in chapter 26 with Abram and Abimelech. And it happens again, sorry, chapter 20 with Abram and Abimelech. And it happens again in chapter 26 with Isaac and Abimelech. It happens with Abimelech twice, king of Greer, with Pharaoh once, Abraham twice, and Abraham's son once. Which talks to us on this Mother's Day how the sins of us as parents can so easily be passed on to our children. Our children will often take many of our traits. Our children might take our hardworking trait. Our children might take our laissez-faire trait. Our children might take whether it's we have a trait that is very deterministic and we're just determined and purposed in everything, or whether we're more free-flowing. There are many traits that our children will take upon us, but unfortunately, they will also take on some of our sinful traits. And I believe that this account here in Scripture is left for us to show us who God is in his faithfulness, but to remind us how important it is to continue to walk in obedience because our sin can so easily be passed on to our children. So Abram thinks, man, the promise is in jeopardy. i got to take this into my own hands. So when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So Pharaoh pays Abram a dowry for his wife. That's what it says. He's taken into his place. He treats Abraham well for her sake. And he gets sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. Pharaoh offers Abram great wealth while she's saying he's my sister. Now we do know when we come to the account of Abimelech, that Sarai is actually Abram's sister. Abram has married his half-sister. So they're telling a half-truth here. He forgot to say she's my wife, but they're both uh, children of Terah, but they have different moms. And so Abram here has married his half-sister, and he's blessed. You see, at times, sin is so deceiving that it seemingly profits us. We end up in a sinful relationship, one that God is says, dishonoring to him because he wants us to, to um, you know, for dating, to be dating a, a believer, not a non-believer. Um, and yet, we feel good about ourselves, we're enjoying the company we have, and so all of a sudden, we're experiencing some blessing. I think that because of that blessing, God's hand must be, and I'm sure Abram convinced himself, hi, huh, I did the right thing. God's hand must be with me, look at how I'm prospering. Look at what's going on here. Even though I've chosen a sinful plan, God's chosen to kind of bless me in it. Look, look at what I've gotten because of it. And I see people, I watch people convince themselves of this all the time. And my own heart can lead in that direction. Where it's easy to justify your sin. It's easy to justify why you were angry in a situation. It's easy to justify why you were proud in a situation. It's easy to justify why you dishonored God with your wealth and why you were greedy in a situation. And then somewhere in that situation, God still, because he's sovereign, blesses you. And you're like, huh, see, it's all good. But it's not all good. It's not good at all. In fact, as it talks here about Abram acquiring again, sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants, 
We know in chapter 16, verse 1, that Hagar is what? She's Egyptian. It's likely in this moment that Abram acquires Hagar. And so this consequence of his sin lasts his entire life. Because it's through Hagar that he'll have Ishmael. That he'll take upon his second wife. And this lasts all of his life. This decision here has ramification that is now lifelong. And beyond life into generations following. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Pharaoh's actually married her. There was probably some ceremony the way that the text would indicate. It wasn't just that she was part of his harem. He probably took her in to be his wife. Now, now God kept Abram's marriage pure and their relationship pure. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way and his wife with everything he had. God uses Pharaoh to bring the rebuke. First, it says he brings serious diseases on Pharaoh. Is this not reminiscent of the Exodus? We'll come to this in a moment. Right, where plagues strike Pharaoh's household so that God's people can be let go. But in this situation, what's interesting is it's God's people's sin that has brought them to Egypt, to Abram's sin. His lies, his deceit, his sin. Pharaoh offers the rebuke. What's going on here, Abram? Why would you lie about all this? Why would you say she's your sister? Why? And he says, go, get out of here. And he gives orders to his men. The orders are probably protective orders. And Abram gets to take with him everything Pharaoh's given him. Pharaoh doesn't take it back. Everything that Abram's brought, Pharaoh says, go and take all of that with you and leave and never come back. Never come back. You see, sin can never be used as a strategy to secure God's promises. Sin can never be used as a strategy to secure God's promises. Sin will only ever always produce death. Only. Whenever we take things into our own hands and we stop trusting God and his faithfulness, it leads us to a mess. And God protects his promises because you can trust his character. God will always protect his promise. And in doing so, he protects their lives. Abram and Sarah, their lives are protected and their marriage is protected. Now, as I said, this is reminiscent briefly of God's people's time in Egypt where there's famine in the land. Joseph is already second in command of, of Egypt. There's famine in the land. And so Israel's family goes to Egypt. And they head to Egypt to buy food. They get there. Eventually they're enslaved there after they have forgotten who Joseph was. Pharaoh's house is filled with plagues and Pharaoh releases them. And I'm sure as the, uh, uh, as the Israelites heard the account of Pharaoh's story with Abram, that as they're experiencing the account with Pharaoh in, in the day of Moses, that they're remem remembering, they're reminiscent of what God did there. But then we come back to Genesis 20 and 26, where with Abimelech this happens two more times. Once with Abram, and then again with Isaac, and we realize that it's so easy for our kids to take on our traits. It happens in our home, right? Occasionally our kids get angry. This happened this week, and, and one of our kids blew up about something, and I was encouraging them not to be angry, and they say, Dad, we got it from you. And that, that's always encouraging. And then they say this, and you got it from your dad. 
And so my prayer even this last week has been, okay, God, would you break this generational sin that has seemed to have its grip in our family's lives? This anger that I know my grandfather had anger issues and then my dad and then I can have them. And God, you can break this. You can break this in me. I've seen you do a work in my dad's life. God, you can break this in me and you can break this in my kids' lives. It can end now and here for their families. So how do you move about that? How do you go about that? Well, one, you trust in God and his promises. God is faithful. God is a faithful God. He longs for us to know him. He longs for us to repent of our sin and trust him. And so we need a right relationship with God. Where firstly I go, God, I am the sinner here. I have sinned. My plan is full of failure. Faults. God, I need to trust you. I need to be able to trust God and his promises. Secondly, I need to allow God to break the pattern of sin in my life. Jesus, you are the Savior. And you are now at work in my life powerfully. And your spirit promises that I can now put to death the sinful nature so that your spirit could reign in me. And we need to be able to reflect and meditate on verses and passages like that so that we can see God's spirit reigning in us. We need to confess our sin both to God and then to those we sin against. So if I've sinned against my children, I can't dismiss it. I need to confess it. When I've sinned against them, I need to go to them and let them know that I have sinned against them. In fact, one of the patterns we try to establish now is when they've sinned against each other or against us is to have them say their story, to actually confess their sin, to have them say that they were wrong, that they've actually sinned against us. And then to depend on God's faithfulness. To depend on God's faithfulness. Because God is faithful. He is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to lead. He is faithful to provide. You know, when I think of Abram and think of who he is and what God uses him for, I am encouraged because I'm a lot like him. There are moments in my life when I hear and see the promises of God. And when I hear and see those promises of God, I can just jump forward into them, whatever it would be. But a certain amount Amy and I should give to the church around the capital, around a certain thing that that we should be doing. Last year, we had a certain amount in mind to give to the capital, and there's a pandemic. And through certain portions of the year, the business is closed. So, Lord, what are we going to do with that? Lord, do we believe that you actually asked us to do this in this pledge? Right? We cry out to him. We, we trust him. I, I'm, a lot like, I'm a lot like Abram, where it's really easy to trust God in moments where I feel like he has spoken and he has shown up and he is there and worshiped them. And then when moments of crisis come to go, okay, i got to make a plan. Instead of, no, i got to worship. I've got to trust. I've got to rely. I've got to depend. I've got to be driven to my knees. And I'm thankful that in the end, Abram's faithfulness was dependent on God. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this of Abram. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architects and builder is God. Is God. 
And so we go, okay, God, it's you we trust in because you're able to do super abundantly more than anything we can ask or imagine. Andrew, you and the team can come up. In Ephesians 3, Paul is talking about how God longs to kick back Christ in the easy chair of our heart. He talks about how God wants to be able to just be at home in our hearts. He talks about how God wants us to know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ for us and that we would experience God's love that surpasses knowledge. And the idea of that prayer is that God wants to take our lives and make them so much like Jesus that it's even more than anything we could ever imagine. So when we think of what we're like in our parenting now today, God is saying, I want to take your life and make you that much more like Jesus. I want to take your life in front of your children, and I want to do something so magnificent that your children will only ever be able to say that the Lord God himself did this, that God did this. At the end of that prayer in Ephesians 3, because so often we think of the obstacles, why I can't be a godlier dad, why I can't be a godlier husband, why I can't be a godlier employee, why I can't be a godlier employer, the things that are prohibiting me, the things that are, God says this, or Paul says this in the prayer. Now to him, that's God who is able to do super abundantly or exceedingly more than anything you can ask or imagine, and it's according to the power of God that it's work within us. To him be the glory in Christ and in the church now and forevermore. He says, now to him, that's God, who is able to do in your life super abundantly, exceedingly more than anything you can ask or imagine. Paul says, God is able to do not just what you ask to do when it comes to Christ-likeness. God is able to do more in terms of your Christ-likeness because there's so far for us to go and God is able to take us to levels of Christ-likeness. He says that you won't even know what to ask for, that you can't even imagine that he can enable you to be so godly, so Christ-like, that it's beyond your imagination, it's beyond your ability to ask for it. Now to him who is able to do super abundantly more than anything you can ask for or imagine, because it's according to God's power that's at work within us. Amen. His power at work within us. God, we need that power so that we follow your call faithfully, And instead of relying and depending on our own plans, on our own ways to get to where we think you want us to go, to trust and depend on you in worship and obedience, would you pray with me? We are thankful, oh God, for Abram, and so often he reminds us of us. Where God, in the moment of your call, we're excited and we jump forward and say, yeah, God, we'll do that. And then when obstacles come our way, when difficulty creeps up, we're like, oh God, this is hard. And we make our own plan to get to where we think you want us to be instead of depending on you. God, teach us to depend on you. And God, in front of our children as we raise them, cause us, oh God, to show them what it means to depend on you. So that unlike Abraham where... His sin was passed on to his children. You would break those patterns of sin in our life so that they wouldn't be. And you'd save our children from the very things that you've saved us from in our relationship with you. And God, for some of us, that seems impossible. We pray to you who is able to do 
more than anything we ask or imagine because it's according to your power that's at work within us. To you be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus now and forevermore. Amen.